Phoenix.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, comics, media, and more. Check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, this is Nico. And this is Kevo. And this is Unfortunately Phoenix.html. Well, parts of it aren't unfortunate, but what is unfortunate is the way this character has been treated over the last 30 years or so. As we record this conversation, we sit opposite my incredible Jean Grey action figure collection. I would just like to clarify that I have everything but one Jean Grey action figure that was released from 1986 through 2007. So Jean Grey is a character that I am overly sensitive about and a little particular about. But you really can't be a Jean fan and feel that. That way Jean is quite frequently treated well it's it's really hard because she is the kind of magical girl central figure of the x-men and in that she carries a really heavy weight with her well there's always a stigma when it comes to a magical girl like that you know she's not exactly the focus of the franchise but so many things about the franchise are about her it's a little bit like river in the firefly franchise where it's not about her but it's about her but it's not about her for a little bit more background on Jean gray i really recommend you guys take a listen to x's for podcast episodes 19 20 21 and 22 as those cover the complete sum totality of the comic book version of the Dark Phoenix Saga, as well as our 25th anniversary episode, where comic creator, artist, writer, editor, and general nerd queen of fandom, Tori Sheehan, came on and talked a little bit about what it means to be a feminist who grew up in the age where Jean Grey was treated very much by her gender and less by her ability in media. So. I really recommend if you're looking for the full conversation to also take a listen to those five episodes of the podcast available here on Cage Club Network. Growing up an enormous Jean Grey fan, my screen names were things like Grey Phoenix Boy and Phoenix Grey and all sorts of fun anime sounding things. I remember that. Oh, it's hard to forget. And so I was so excited for Gene to appear in the X-Men movies. I remember showing up with a Gene action figure in my pocket. I didn't want anybody to see it, but I brought my green X-Men the Animated Series Gene Grey figure with the light-up hair. That is so you. And you know what? You were like 14 at the time. It's not that weird. It was a little bit weirder when I brought the 10-inch with the real hair to X2, but my dad was pretty good-natured about it. Okay, you were like... 17 that's not that's not that strange well if it makes you feel any better during x-men the last hand i'm pretty sure i got a hand job so things were definitely a little bit different by the third one again that is just so very you and indicative of the nature of this franchise the first two were definitely about action figures and the third one was definitely about brett ratner getting a hand job 
gosh, I just, I don't even know what to make of this franchise and what it was possibly trying to be. I think it would be hard to argue against the notion that this X-Men trilogy really, really, really was instrumental in pushing the boundaries and acceptance of superhero films as blockbusters and as franchises that were taken seriously. But it sort of reminds me of how I fell in love with Torchwood before I fell in love with Doctor Who, and I didn't think anything could possibly be better than Torchwood. And now when I go back and rewatch the first season, I'm like, oh, this is like Babytown Frolics. You're just really excited to talk about, like, sex and butts, and you're just not even trying for quality, are you? A lot of the X-Men trilogy really was just about, as our friend Chris is fond of putting it, smashing action figures together. And while that's always an element of action films and the superhero genre more specifically, you know, I think superhero films have come to be about a lot more in the last 20 years. But before we can really get to the good stuff, you have to uh, get through some of the bad. And there are definitely a lot of things about 2000s X-Men film that, I mean, they've never been beloved certain things. Halle Berry's frog line uh, is specifically reviled by most film fans, let alone superhero film fans. And it's that sort of generic mistreatment of the superhero genre as nothing more than another smash em up action movie that took a voice like Joss Whedon, who is actually responsible for that goddamn toad line, revitalizing what we thought of a superhero team movie. Because as much as I love the first few Marvel Cinematic movies, they're not team movies. And X-Men needed an Avengers to show it how to X-Men, I guess, is the way to put it, sort of. Well, whether we feel that Avengers showing X-Men how to X-Men actually has worked out in the decade that we're in, why don't we delve into X-Men from 2000 a little bit? What do we have to say about the first two movies before we really dive into the one that focused on the Phoenix herself? Well, I say focused on, but we'll elaborate on what that really means later. The first X-Men movie was a really weird way to express the X-Men. I understand that these are meant to be adaptations, but the cast they threw together and the way, like, every third person was meant to be representative of a dozen other people was so strange Rogue is some kind of Rogue Kitty Jubilee mega mashup, and I'm not sure exactly who Wolverine is supposed to be, because it seems to be the lead character in every film, regardless of the source material. Well, I think it shows that Brian Singer didn't really have much knowledge or interest in X-Men before coming on to this project. He himself admits as much, and the only reason that he really took this job was... He related to the X-Men's themes and the theme of alienation and being rejected by society, himself being a gay man, the way that many gay people are drawn to the X-Men for the same reason. That and the fact that he couldn't get a Battlestar Galactica remake movie off the ground are why he took this job in the first place. I do believe that shows in the product that we got. I feel too much of the first X-Men movie is silly and generic. Though, in a lot of ways, the first X-Men movie is a result of the animated series. It's shocking that characters like Gambit didn't show up, even though 
he was made so popular by that era. He was one of the mutants they considered having at one point. He was going to be one of the students, potentially, that we saw during the student montage. But they were like, people might not understand why this kid is just making basketballs blow up. So they just sort of went with other stuff instead. But fun fact, the voice actor for Beast from the animated series is the trucker who drops Rogue off at the uh, truck stop where she meets Wolverine. Guarantee! Sure. Crawfish! Gumbo! So, they didn't go with Beast either in this first movie, even though he makes a minor cameo. I do think it's interesting the way this movie ultimately imprinted on what a lot of people think the X-Men are. For instance, Magneto working with Mystique in this first movie drives me nuts. They both were in the Brotherhood, but they ran very different versions of the Brotherhood, and Mystique is nobody's second in command. And not to get way too far ahead of ourselves, but even in the X franchise from this decade, they run in the same circle with how they've retconned Xavier and Mystique's relationship, but they're not friends in these movies either, and they don't really work together. So she's like basically his gal Friday in the first two and a half films of this trilogy. So it's really weird to learn that they have no relationship from the comics and that that's not something they attempted to really duplicate with the later films, but it's something they leaned so heavily into here. I also think there's just something so much more grandfatherly about Patrick Stewart's performance of Xavier that I don't think I really glean from either the comics or the animated series. Uh, Kitty Pride says it best. Charles Xavier is a jerk and... That's not Patrick Stewart's performance of this character really at all at any point. And that was a very interesting choice on the part of the filmmakers and Patrick Stewart himself. Because at the end of the day, these aren't even stereotype or archetype versions of these characters. For the most part, they are total departures. Now, it's important that I say this once because I wouldn't be much of an X-Men fan if I didn't. Understanding that this is an adaptation, they are of course welcome to take liberties. One of the liberties I find strangest is making Wolverine a giant. Mm-hmm. Wolverine should be 5'3", and don't get me wrong, best actor for the role, but one of the driving forces behind Wolverine is his little man syndrome, so it's really strange that they would cast him so differently. I love Hugh Jackman as a performer, and I think Hugh Jackman's great. That said, Hugh Jackman is not my dream Wolverine. He plays a very good, gruff, movie Wolverine, but he lacks a lot of the nuance and subtlety that I have come to expect from Logan. He plays a really great leading man Wolverine, but Wolverine is not himself a leading man. He can carry solo stories because he is a strong character, but in a group setting, he is not a character that I would say is a quote-unquote leading man or a real leader type, or at least not in his origins for sure so it was a strange choice to put wolverine so far front and center you know i really felt like the only character who was anyway in character in these films was scott and that's mostly by the nature of being pretty boy scoutish and quiet scott essentially plays the very generic scott that he is and Scott is a great example of any time this movie gets close to being good, it immediately pulls its punches. Honestly, I would give the movie like a 5 out of 10. I don't think it's the worst thing I've ever seen. But every problem I have with this movie can mostly be summarized in two sequences. On a mutant action level, 
Magneto turning Senator Kelly into a jelly monster is pretty stupid. And the the character moment that really bothers me is Scott following up the great line of, if I had to worry about her, uh, she wouldn't be my girl. That line makes it sound like he is so secure in his relationship with Jean, who is a strong, self-controlled woman who knows what she's doing, and they are equals. He doesn't have to worry about her. She loves him as much as he loves her, and it's good, and it's healthy, and he follows it up with stay away from my girl, and it's just this incredible attempt at creating a strong relationship and then immediately making Cyclops nervous and cucked by Wolverine. Well, it wouldn't be a Nico podcast if you didn't say the word cuck at least once. And I, I agree. I agree with everything that you're saying. Any notes on the characterization of Gene in the first film before we move on to X2, which apparently is the full title of the film. Sometimes it is known as X2, X-Men United, but it can just be literally the letter X and the number two. Bold choice, but you know, that's fine. Wait, Gene was in the first X-Men movie? It was hard to tell because all of the characters had so little personality. She was that lady who got scared of her own powers all the time. Because, you know, women. For real, she kept fainting every time she used her abilities. And she was like, oh, sorry, <laughs> And then she's like, my telekinesis isn't terribly useful in fighting Magneto, so I'm not going to use it a lot. And on the one hand, you're like, you know, that was 20 years ago and we've come so far. But the year 2000 isn't a year that we should be saying it was 20 years ago we've come so far. Buffy had already aired four seasons at that point. The entire series of Xena had aired at that point. We had unapologetically strong depictions of women in media for sure by the time this film came out. So giving Storm so little character development and making Jean seem so weak in her own powers really, really was just so not cool, basically. The only strong woman in the entire movie is the one who walks around naked in blue body paint the entire time. Gee, I wonder why the men chose that. And unfortunately, that is the M.O. for this franchise. The only times we see women in strong, powerful roles is usually for a quick blast after which they fade from the sequence for quite a while. Storm does a big lightning bolt, and then we cut to Logan for 20 minutes. This is an unfortunate pattern that does not actually fit the X-Men themselves. The X-Men becomes a very female-dominated title, so it's unfortunate that the women characters were given the short end of the stick. As this is a Phoenix podcast, we're not looking at it too much for the overall X-Picture. So, Keva, was there anything else you had on X-Men before we moved along to X2? You know, not really a ton. I think I was somewhat defensive of this film when we first got to know each other because it was one of my only experiences in the superhero world. And I didn't know, I, 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 and I hadn't grown up watching the X-Men, the animated series, so I didn't even know it from the cartoon so I didn't have any experience understanding what X-Men was. Now, like, 12 years into our relationship, yeah, I can absolutely see where this was very frustrating for you as an X-Men fan. And is it the worst movie ever made? No. You know, there are so many worse superhero movies that came out within five years of this one, obviously. But um, we certainly still had a long way to go. And sadly, we did not make nearly enough headway before X2. The only really signature moment we need to discuss from this movie as it relates to the Phoenix is Jean's weird telepathy growing and then her being crushed by the ocean. 
I really like that they were like, let's put her at the bottom of a body of water. They really, I mean, you know, it's the, I, I don't know. There's something very, I think the Catcher in the Rye is about trying to catch something about it. We heard that she goes under the water and she turns into a firebird. So we're going to do some water and some fire. Fuck. You put baseball in a Catcher in the Rye movie. That makes sense, right? No, that's not what it means. But okay, sure. Is Alkali Lake anything from the comics? Yes, but Jamaica Bay is where all of the Phoenix stuff takes place. So I guess it's that much like they did with many characters in the film franchise, they just merged two concepts together. Okay. I mean, what is what what else is there to say about this film? In terms of the three, where do you rank it specifically? Number one. Really? Talk about that for a sec. Well, I hate number three, and I think the first one is middling. So it's which one is the top of the pile of garbage? Well, I actually give this movie like a solid B minus in a good job way. You know how when an artist that always lets you down, they have a great single and then the album always sucks, releases an album where you're like, you know what? I liked six of these. This was great, right? It's not like Adele released an album and I liked five songs a lot and the rest was crappy and I'm like, eh, it's like a B plus. No, this is like, this is like a B minus, and I'm really proud of them. Good job on your B minus. You really earned that 80. As an X-Men fan, though, what, what is it that you like liked or thought they got right in this one versus the others? I didn't think they really got anything right. I just like it. There's enough of the X-Men as minorities that works for me. Watching Logan be protective of Bobby and Rogue works for me, even though it's not really the nature of those relationships. I enjoy what little gene we do get. I like seeing Magneto be Magneto-ier. In the first movie, he, other than that, we are the future Charles, not them. Other than that line, he's very generic bad guy. And here he's a little bit more Charles. Oh, no. That was great, though, by the way. That was a really great um, Alistair Gay guy. What's his name again? Ian McKellen. You're keeping that. Alistair Gay Guy. I hope he hears it, and I hope that he is real happy with it, because I mean it with so much love. And uh, it leads me into my next point being, he's such a catty gay bitch in this movie, and I love the fuck out of it. Everything, at every moment, even when he's like basically in the X-Men's custody, he is just like... The queeniest, bitchiest, we love what you've done with your hair. <laughs> yeah, he's very Lady Goddamnia. It is a little out of control, but that works for Magneto. Magneto is like a sassy old queen, makes me really happy. I also like to imagine that Michael Fassbender grows up to be a sassy old queen for me. That's something I wanted to make sure that I said in this episode. There is, I see so many echoes of Ian McKellen's performance in Fassbender's performance as Magneto, and I don't know how much he studied Ian McKellen or his performance to do the character in this decade, but um, he really does a great job of capturing him and his performance as Magneto. I, I really feel like it's a continuous character between those two. I definitely know what you mean about this one playing up the mutant type themes more there were a lot of on the nose things in this film though a lot of the have you tried not being a mutant 
I I do frequently forget sometimes though that in 2003 we were still so far behind where we are now on people understanding gay issues that that was really the first time many people had heard that as something that gay people are asked frequently still when they come out have you tried not being gay like so it's very on the nose but it's also very real so you can't exactly blame it for mirroring reality in that way Hated and Feared has always been one of the X-Men's most utilized MOs, so seeing a version of it here that does directly apply to the real-world scenario of being gay, especially done by a queer filmmaker, that definitely did growing up make me feel better. And I wonder if that's part of how this movie imprinted on me so positively. It left me with great hope for X3, especially as Gene was set up to be the Phoenix in it. So I thought we were going to get a third movie that was about the Phoenix. I thought the third movie would be about the Phoenix, Kevy. Kevy, I thought the third movie would be about the Phoenix. I know, I know you did. And it's because you believed the lie. There was, you know, you touched on it earlier, but there, there really was nothing in this film to set up a third film of her being the Phoenix. There was nothing in the film that justified the moment of her using her telepathy and dying. She mentioned having a few headaches, throughout the film but like it really 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 wasn't zeroed in on heavily enough or focused on heavily enough in this film to justify the climactic moment or to make us or to give us hope that the next film was going to be something great and have something important for gene because it really 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 does not do you have anything left on these two films before we step into the third one I also liked Professor Logan. I thought that was fun. It was a cute side to see to the character. And I am looking forward to when Stryker comes up again in the later X-Men franchise, as we will be tackling next episode. But apart from that, no, let's get to this completely disjointed threequel. Well, I just need to jump in for one second. I was like, wait, how do you, you know, the earlier, later franchise that also has a moment that comes at the very end that we haven't caught up to yet earlier, but later. Because the reset in Days of Future Past shows us everybody at, like, the end of X3, but then the next movie takes place, like, 20 years before it. Oh, yeah, the timeline is just a goddamn mess. Absolutely. I will say this, though. It's really interesting that this film opens with a flashback that says 20 years ago, because if this is 2006, that actually does kind of track with X-Men Apocalypse and the introduction of Jean Grey to Xavier Mansion, because it takes place in like the mid 80s. I'd have to look up the exact date, but it kind of feels like they're trying to make it make sense. It's really all going to depend on when Dark Phoenix takes place, too, to be honest. That's where we start in X-Men The Last Stand, not X3. There is no number in this title. It is specifically X-Men The Last Stand. And we open with the recruitment of Jean Grey. This is meant to sort of reference some stuff in the comics, but the Brett Ratnerification of this film is really interesting. I actually remember liking Rush Hour and Rush Hour 2 as a kid. I haven't seen them in a number of years, so I can't speak to their quality as an adult. But I can certainly say Brett Ratner was not the choice to direct Dark Phoenix Saga. 
And, you know, you're putting a lot on Brett Ratner, but I really do have to chime in and say another name that is very important to bring up here. Simon Kinberg, who not only co-wrote this film with Zach Penn, but has written every X-Men film since X-Men First Class. So this is the person who not only gave us Last Stand, but has been giving us all of the recent X-Men franchise as well, since the first one. What's really unfortunate is my favorite of all of the films really is First Class. So it's really disappointing that of like the last five movies, the only one I genuinely love is the one he's not associated with. And frankly, that means that he's not responsible for some of the things that people love the most about this franchise, specifically the Jennifer Lawrence, James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender performances as the lead characters, and Nick Holt as Beast, too. I don't think that he's necessarily the most beloved of all of the new X-Men, but he's been there since the beginning as well. These actors, who are the ones that these films are built on, weren't originated from any of the Simon Kinberg films. Now, it would be difficult to talk about X3, X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men The Last Bit of Integrity the Series Had. It'd be difficult to talk about this film without talking about the movie that could have been. The Brian Singer version of X3 would have seen Sigourney Weaver as Emma Frost in an Emma Frost-Jason Wingard hybrid role, and it wouldn't have killed James Marsden, 10 minutes into the movie, who left to go make Superman with Brian Singer? Mm, I want to talk about that death, though. It's really interesting. And I said it while we were watching the movie, but I swear to God, she eats him, right? Like, I really strongly feel like the Phoenix is drawn in by his optic blast into the lake and sees it as an energy source and probably actually feeds on Scott. And I'm really surprised that a director like Brett Ratner wouldn't want to just go all in on a death like that. This was pre-Deadpool. There was a lot of concern with keeping it PG-13 in a very different way, in a very George W. Bush era way than it is now. So I think the level of respectability on what they could show has changed greatly. And that's really interesting to consider, especially knowing that this movie only came out about 13 years ago. Wow, so much has happened in 13 years, and not just in a real-world sort of way, but the entirety of the New 52 at DC, the MCU, the failure of multiple attempts to adapt Watchmen, the rise of Black Panther and the non-white straight male superhero, the success of Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. It really was a completely different world this movie was made in. Iron Man had not even come out yet still. Iron Man was still two years away from coming out. I believe the summer that this film came out was only months after it was announced that Marvel Studios had taken out the loan to try and start the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So even at the end of the X-Men original trilogy, we were still at the very beginning of superhero films as we know them. Of course, this movie is not just pre- the modern superhero age, this movie is not a great representation of the previous superhero age. There were two third movies that really kind of shit the bed. It was Spider-Man 3 and X3 that were both really considered missed marks. Along with things like Batman 3 and 4, there seemed to be this idea that the longer you got into a superhero franchise, the campier it had to get. I was just shocked that Gene didn't have a musical tap dance number at a bar. 
and I think if Legion has proven anything, it's that you can have a musical tap dance number at a bar in a superhero franchise and have it still be mesmerizing and amazing art, but that's not what a lot of creators tend to deliver when they do something like that. It's a lot more Peter Parker pointing fingers and swinging them hips. It was right at the beginning, too. The quips that they made in the first film about, what did you want, yellow spandex? Ha ha ha. While they tried to do a good job of making superhero costumes look realistic to modern life and actual combat in the MCU, you know, Cap still has his stars and stripes, and Iron Man still has his red and gold. They didn't try and make him some kind of, like, giant bulbous Rob Liefeld figure, you know? It is really interesting that the X-Men are so associated with their costume changes. Iron Man is pretty much known for the one suit. Cap is pretty much known for the one or two suits. But I can name five popular Logan outfits. I can name four different recognizable X-Men uniforms, and that's not counting everybody's unique outfits. This movie really leaned into Ultimate X-Men, which was like the tough, gritty version. And that's what we got. We got the tough, gritty version. We did. We really did. And we ultimately got a version that had very, very little Jean Grey or Phoenix. So, uh, let's talk about this movie. You had done your normal BTS and research for this film, and we'd kind of promised that we weren't going to, and then we've done it every step of the way. I did like a little bit. I did the least amount I could possibly do. To that, you came up with some really startling numbers about Gene's involvement in this film by screen time. Yeah, you know, um, I was curious as we were watching it because it really felt in so many ways like Gene just pulls right the F out of this movie, which kind of makes sense because much like how Zach Penn and David Hayter wrote X2 together as two separate drafts that they just merged into one movie. That is apparently what happened uh, with this movie. Zach Penn and Simon Kinberg wrote their own two separate drafts that they just pushed together. That's certainly a choice. But then you end up with a movie that feels like elements can literally just lift right the hell out. And so much of Gene's involvement, it either completely lifts out of the film or could easily just be another character. As a matter of fact, she doesn't even look like Jean. The person she looks like is Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch. She really does, and I believe that I read that it was intentional to give her that sort of look. It's a choice. It makes me wonder if at one point they had been considering Wanda being that stand-in figure, to be honest, because it really feels like it could have just as easily been a random mutant like Wanda who kills the professor. It feels like it could have been a random mutant like Wanda who was the Brotherhood's ace in the hole, who was the one who taunted Magneto with the cure. There's just so much about her both involvement and non-involvement in the plot that could have just either been lifted out or it could have been anyone. It's really startling. This is also at a time when Wanda, under Brian Michael Bendis's pen, was the biggest deal ever at Marvel. She had been the villain and protagonist somehow of Avengers Disassembled and would go on to be the central focus of House of M. And during this time, she had very, I'm crazy and use powers to blow things up kind of abilities. And that was very much in line with the depiction they gave us. So, you know, I really would not be shocked if you're correct. And we discovered that there's a draft on the floor somewhere of Wanda in the Jean role and Jean coming back the following movie. 
Kind of, yeah. Because, like, let me actually break this down for you. If you go by the point at which Scott arrives at Alkali Lake up to Xavier describing what he did to Jean with the mental wards in the infirmary at the school, it's about eight and a half minutes of screen time. Jean waking up in the infirmary with Logan and then fleeing, about four and a half. And then the scene at Jean's childhood home is about seven and a half minutes. So in the first 50 minutes of the entire film, Jean's got about 20 minutes of screen time and story devoted to her. That's not, you know, nothing. In the final half of the film, after she obliterates the professor, you see her for about a minute at the camp when she's taunting Eric with the cure. You see glimpses of her while Logan is looking for her, but over two minutes, you probably see her for about 30 seconds. You see her a few flashes during the final battle when the Brotherhood of Mutants shows up at Alcatraz Island. But again, she does nothing throughout the entire battle. She doesn't do anything to either the Brotherhood or the X-Men. She just kind of stands there looking all red and scowly. And then from the moment that Eric is hit with the cure to Wolverine actually having to do the deed is about five minutes. So in the last 40 minutes of the film, Jean has dramatically less than 10 minutes of screen time devoted to her. It really makes it hard to take this movie seriously to discuss what it's best known for as barely in it. It's so shocking. It's kind of a Hamilton thing where everybody talked about Jonathan Groff as the king and he's in eight minutes of the whole fucking show. Yeah, I really see what you're saying. I think because they had that tease at the end of X2 of the bird flying through the water and in promotional material, they leaned so heavily into this notion of her being the phoenix and it being prominent, but it honestly isn't. I think a good metaphor for all of this is the fact that the VFX supervisor, John Bruno, has stated that the Golden Gate bridge scene cost $35 million and a sixth of the film's entire budget. And that sequence was two and a half minutes long. You spent a sixth of the entire budget of your film on two and a half minutes. That's really not how you should proportionately be spending the budget of your movie. And I don't think most people could even quote back to you the fact that they did that with the Golden Gate Bridge. I, I think before rewatching this, I probably would have said, there's something with the Golden Gate Bridge. They like move a part of it or something, or I don't know. Magneto gets a job with Public Works and helps resection the bridge for stability. That sounds right to me, yeah. Magneto in this movie is kind of the dumbest thing I've ever fucking seen. Number one, he's so powerful, and I love it, because that is how powerful Magneto should be. But number two, he's kind of like, I'm going to stop them, Charles. You can't stop me, Charles. Oh no, Mystique's a normal person. Time to go. It is this weird performance, and it's kind of like a little bit gay and sassy, but it's also a little bit... The MC from Cabaret? No, he was in the last movie. That's a great joke, and I'm so happy with you right now. Thank you. He was actually potentially supposed to be in this movie, but Alan Cumming hated the makeup, since Halle Berry was only coming back for this movie if she got more screen time, which, damn right, they really only had enough time to focus on Beast if they wanted to bring Nightcrawler in. They were going to have to reduce something, and they were just like, fuck it. I find it very telling that this is supposed to be a Phoenix podcast and we're having trouble focusing on Gene because there's so little to focus on. I need to jump in 
anyone who knows me knows that Kelsey Grammer is probably one of my favorite actors ever in the history of the world. I have seen every episode of Frasier a million times. I can recite it. It's awful. I think it's just one of the greatest pieces of comedy ever, and I think he has one of the greatest performances in the history of the world as Frasier Crane, and I find his beast a little silly. It has nothing to do with Kelsey Grammer, but they fucking gave him the St. Crispin's Day speech. That's a plan. Sir, at the end of the movie, when he's like, what we do, whatever the fucking quote is, this he says some dumb patent Shakespeare shit. He doesn't. You were waiting the whole movie. No, 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 there's that point. No, no, no. There's that point where he's like, um, what we do now. It's in the fight sequence at the end when the cure darts are flying. He's like, Fraser. I will not for one second give you beast in this movie because angel is in this movie and is one of the worst things to be forced into this movie it is ridiculous the opening scene is horrifying and then we don't care about that character ever again so why even have him in here except to show me ben foster shirtless in 2006 you certainly did not have to force ben foster into anything he evidently like went crazy trying to get super fit for this role and one of the things that i think comes across is he does seem kind of what i know to be workout dead he seems like he's at that place where he is perfectly dried out and he is ready for show prep and literally can't move anymore the whole world is just a daze and he has so many supplements in him he is going to float away he does look pretty tired, but I think that might just be his eyes. I loved him in Get Over It with Kirsten Dunst and Mila Kunis and Cisco. I loved him on a Disney Channel show before that, where he was on it with Kaylee from Firefly. Jewel State, that's why she had to leave Space Cases. I almost said with Kaylee from Space Cases, and then I realized that's not the case. The Space Case. Nah. Speaking of weird people from weird things, I freaked the fuck out when I saw that Dania Ramirez played Callisto in this movie. Now, we ourselves, first and foremost, know her better from an unfortunately short-lived show called Devious Maids, where she played a wonderful, delightful, sweet character, then secondarily know her from the final season of Once Upon a Time, where she played Cinderella, Henry Mills' wife. Holy shit, the fact that we could not remember that she was the person who played Callisto in this movie really is a testament to how little we watch this movie and how little it sticks out in our memories, honestly. And she is so great on everything she's in. We genuinely think she's incredible. And look, I'm a humongous Desperate Housewives and Devious Maids fan. The bad stuff's really terrible, but the performances are really incredible. Her performances as a mother who is working impossibly hard to bring her child over from a foreign country and keep him here and deal with immigration law and it's and power disparity and classism she actually gives a phenomenal performance so to see her here as Callisto was genuinely disappointing because she is so genuinely super talented this was an underutilization of her and an underutilization of that character who is a well-beloved character from the X-Men series. She does have a rivalry with Storm in the comics, so it was nice to see them face off for a second, but that did leave Kevo and I to our favorite joke. At one point, Callisto and Storm are fighting, and Storm, like, maddeningly electrocutes her, and at the end of the scene, her LeBray piercing is, like, lit up from all the lightning. It's so dumb. 
It is pretty ridiculous. That was a very specific and weird attention to detail on the filmmaker's part. Also on the subject of actors and connections to other films and etc., the actor who played the president in this, Joseph Summer, was invited to play the president by Brett Ratner following their collaboration in the Nicolas Cage film The Family Man. That movie just keeps coming the fuck up on our podcast. You know, Joey, we do our best to make you proud. I was also horrified when I read part of this character's description on Wiki, and it said while creating the role, the producers felt that a quote-unquote different president, like an African-American or a woman, had become a cliche in itself and went for a traditional route with an elder Caucasian man. I actually couldn't believe that I read those words in 20 goddamn 19 and that this was made in the year 2006. Wow. Thank goodness somebody spoke up for the underrepresented white male presidents. Like, you couldn't think of anything else? I really doubt that we'd ever seen a black female president in fiction up at, at that point, for example. Like, an Asian man as president instead of African American. Like, literally, you can't stop coming up with anything other than those two things. But you didn't like those two things, and you went back to white male Oh, people, this is what we're talking about, man. Ugh. We got away from Gene again, though, much like the X-Men themselves frequently do. Well, we could talk about the flaws of this movie and, you know, stupid things like, why the fuck did Bobby take Kitty ice skating? That was the most random goddamn thing on the planet. And why did Rogue disappear halfway through the movie and not come back? And why didn't she come back during the final battle with a bunch of other mutants who decided to save their powers and actually contribute to the fight? And why did they have a woman give up her agency like that? We could talk about all of those things. But I'm going to ask, was there anything you felt the film got right in terms of representing the Phoenix? No, honestly, people aren't even appropriately afraid of the Phoenix in this film. The Phoenix is just like a personality in Gene. Now, there's no version of the Phoenix in the comics that it's not a deity. It's not a creature or a force or an energy, a primordial form of life that bonded with Gene or sometimes even replaces Gene. But this is... Jean had a lot of powers and got real cranky about it, and so she developed a bad guy in her brain. It's not remotely the Phoenix. There's really nothing this film got right. I appreciate that they copied Logan stabbing Jean from one of my favorite comic runs of all time, and that's it. This is not remotely X-Men or Jean or any of those things to me. And, you know, once again, as someone who didn't really have a lot of experience with the X-Men before I knew you, it makes me indignant now that I know better and now that I know the character better. And to know that the writers fought the studio, the studio wanted to remove all of the Phoenix stuff and they had to fight to keep it in. The studio felt that all of the Phoenix stuff would be too inaccessible to a broad audience and that it would only connect with specifically like comic fandom and you know what's really disappointing is that it didn't even do that they didn't even properly connect with the people who would care about the phoenix so ultimately they might as well have just removed it entirely or called her something different i don't know but this is this is certainly not the actual phoenix and you know with the ways that i've mentioned i do feel the recent x-men franchise connects back to this original x-men trilogy it really leaves me stumped as to how they could possibly do a better Dark Phoenix without having to do a complete retcon of 
what this stuff was. Without talking too much about the upcoming Dark Phoenix, what we do understand is that it is in many ways like a shot-for-shot remake of X-Men The Last Stand, so clearly they weren't sure how they were going to get away from this one either. (sighs) We'll burn that bridge when we come to it. And until the fiery wrath of Sophie Turner returns to burn away Famke Jensen from our minds, Kevo, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? You can find me kicking around the webs uh, on Instagram or Twitter at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me posting lots of cool and fun stuff over on our Facebook page, Husbands Talking More or Less, or at Official HTML. And you can find me posting a lot of really cool, fun, diverse superhero comic art on our website, KidRiotComics.com, where we've been producing Kid Riot for, gosh, nearly five years now. I love how many of the places people can find you, they can also find me. You can also find me here on Cage Club on shows like X's for Podcast, where we dissect the X-Men comic book franchise along with our amazing contributors like our boyfriend Jonah and our incredible friends Matthew, Dylan, and Dr. Matthew. You can also check out my work on Now and Again with my childhood best friend, where we dissect pop music using the Now That's What I Call Music series as a guide mark to see the changing face of music and popular culture. Also, don't forget to check out my Instagram, Nico Action, where you can catch a whole lot of nerdy postings and see some of our amazing adventures as we go around the country checking out live shows and cons. All right, until she comes back to burn away what doesn't work, we will see you on the other side of Jamaica Bay. Car!